We're still in the book of 1 Timothy. This is our third or fourth message, I think. And uh, we are going to begin this morning by reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Um, this is one of those passages that is, uh, is difficult for some in our culture to understand. But as we look at God's word and hold it high and say that this is... This is God's revealed word. we got to pay attention to it. We've got to think about what it says and consider what it means for our lives. So we're going to do that this morning. Would you listen along or read along as, uh, as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. May God bless the reading of his word. Back when my brother and I owned a longboard company, some of our riders, they rode skateboards like this, some of our riders would talk about the dangers of something called death wobble. Death wobble sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Death wobble is what you get sometimes when you're flying down a hill at ridiculous speeds and you, uh, you come to that point where you, your, your wheels start to shimmy and shake and they send vibrations through that three-quarter inch uh, piece of plywood you're standing on, into your feet, causing all of your muscles to just tense up and do everything they possibly can to keep you balanced so you don't go flying off of your skateboard. It's fun. <laughs> I'll never forget uh, one time when one of our riders, yeah, we had riders, we had a, we had a team of, of riders who would go into races, and there's this one time we're up uh, up in the hills, and I'm down on the ground with a video camera, and I'm filming, and this, this guy comes flying towards me, and then right about as he passes me, he loses his balance, wiggles, waggles all over the place, and then goes flying off of his board over the side of the, the embankment down the hill. And I know what you're thinking, but don't worry. No animals were harmed, no indigenous plants were harmed, and we did find the board. So, all was well. Downhill longboarding is, uh, is a dangerous sport. But those experienced riders uh, who have the right equipment, it's tuned just right, they can reach speeds of like between 80 and 90 miles an hour. And if it's tuned just right, they can avoid that death wobble. It's amazing. It's incredible, really. The church in Ephesus was experiencing a sort of death wobble. It was, 
There were, there were tremors, there were cavitations that were threatening, really, to tear the church apart. And that's one of the reasons that Paul leaves Timothy there and gives him these instructions. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he says that he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to the church, so that you may know, he writes, how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church needed a tune-up. It needed an alignment. Like any vehicle, the church is a complex, multifaceted mechanism that unless everything is adjusted to just the proper specs, it doesn't function the way it was designed to function. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about this false teaching that was, that was welling up within the church in Ephesus. Bad ideas were were causing a stir. They were leading people to behave in destructive ways. And we mentioned those speculations, those controversies in chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, we see that poor alignment uh, with what is true was impacting the way that men and women were behaving. And Paul's response here is to give Timothy some instructions to get these people back in line with the way they were designed to live in the, the family of God, in the church. Now, the way that they were behaving and the specifics that were happening, they may have been particular to that specific location, that place in history, and that cultural context. But what is true for us as we read God's word, as we read the Bible, and is important for us to understand is that behind the details are universal truths that transcend time and culture. Like, like the laws of physics. The laws of physics, they say, are immutable. The design of, of, of a vehicle, a skateboard, or maybe a car. Those designs may change, right? And they do change, right? There's different types of skateboard trucks, different types of wheels, different types of boards, different types of cars, different types of front-end suspension. You could have a solid axle. You could have double wishbone suspension. Um, but the reality is, unless they all take into account those unchanging physical laws, they're going to run into problems. That's what we see today. We, what we want to do today is to understand those, those underlying principles here, those timeless principles of design so that we might function properly as a church in our particular time, in our particular location, in our particular cultural context. And to do that, I think the best thing for us to do is to travel back in time, back to the beginning, it's really convenient for us because we just finished our study in Genesis. So a lot of these things are still fresh in our minds, and we'll just touch on them here and present some of the takeaways that we received from uh, the book of Genesis. First of all, about God. In the beginning, it says, God created. That's where it all starts. The world isn't here by chance. The way things are, that's not an accident. It's all by design. There's a single source by which everything in existence has its origin. The celestial bodies, the elements, the species, they all have their origin in this all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign being known as God. Secondly, creatures are, are not responsible for their existence. They're dependent on God, and so without God, they don't talk, they don't walk, they don't breathe, they don't think, they don't exist 
unless it's, it's for him. And so they're indebted to him. They owe him. They owe him their thanks, their praise, their, their allegiance, their obedience. David writes in Psalm 139, I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's his response to being uh, designed by his maker. And then we learn in the first chapter of Genesis that human beings are designed specially apart from all the rest of creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, the maker said. People alone are made in the image of God. There's something about them that resembles God. And so it logically follows that if you pay attention to human beings, that you're going to learn something about God. And it also follows that if you want to truly know human beings, if human beings truly want to know themselves, well, then they truly need to know something of who God is. And then finally, we learned that this image thing, it's tied to something. It's directly connected to something. Do you remember what that is? It's tied directly to gender. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, unless you've been in a coma for the past several years, you can see that there are some major alignment issues between what the Bible says and between what our culture has come to embrace and believe about gender. And I'm not going to argue the finer points of gender here this morning or this evening or whenever it is you're watching. It's the morning for me. Um, because this, this passage isn't so concerned about gender dysphoria or homosexuality or transgenderism as it is about the roles of men and women and those roles that they were designed to have within the church. If you like more information about the convictions of our church regarding human sexuality, I just want to encourage you, go to our website under what we believe. You're going to see our statement of faith on that page. And then the very bottom, there's going to be a link to this thing called the Nashville Statement. And that statement pretty much encapsulates where our church stands on all of these things. And that's the statement that we have officially adopted and embraced as a body. But for our passage today, it's important for us to consider how gender reflects the image of God. What does God look like? How would you describe him? Well, first of all, we have to say there's only one God, right? The Bible makes that very clear. He's one in essence, one in glory, one in purpose. He's one in being. There's one God. And yet, the Bible teaches at the very same time, he's three distinct persons. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's all of these three at the same time. Each one shares that same essence, that same glory, that same purpose, that same being. They're not, they're not similar. They are the same. That's what the Council of Nicaea in 325 concluded about God. They're one, but they are exactly the, the, the same. They're equal. They have the same value. And yet they're distinct. This is puzzling, isn't it? It's a mystery that we, it's hard to wrap your head around. Each person has a different role, different function, and they actually relate differently 
to each other. And so the Father, God the Father, always leads the Son. And the Son always submits to the direction of the Father. The Father always plans. The Son always executes. The Father does the sending. The Son is the one who is sent. There is clear order in the Godhead. There's a perfect relationship. There's a perfect admiration, a perfect respect, perfect harmonious functioning. No one is left out. No one is minimized or neglected or abused. This is beautiful. It's amazing. It's awesome. Any company or organization would die to have this kind of symbiosis. This is the kind of relationship that, in, in a way, in an imperfect way, the parts of your car have with each other. They just fit together and align just right so that it runs properly, and all of them are important, right? All of them have value. The way God designed men and women, it reflects that very same thing. They're both fully human. They both have dignity. They both have value, and it's totally equal. That's what Paul affirms when, uh, for people that have been placed their trust in Jesus Christ. They were created that way, but then sin came in, didn't it? Sin came in and just threw everything out of whack. So all of a sudden, that mutual respect that we were designed to have, that was exchanged for a sense of self-superiority. And that value that was shared, that was replaced by fierce competition, which resulted in all kinds of nasty words and actions uh, aimed at devaluing the opposite sex. And, and the mutual benefit that was once shared was given way to a desire to take advantage of each other for personal gratification. It's, it's tragic, really. It's disgusting. I mean, you look at it, it's almost infantile. This is one of the wrongs that Jesus came to right. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And so the division between the races, between social status, even gender, was, uh, that was created by sin. But it's abolished in Christ. His sacrifice on the cross brings us back to proper relationship with God. And it brings us back to proper relationship with each other. In essence, it's the reversal of the fall. It's the reversal. Both men and women are once again to be seen as having that same intrinsic value. Not only have they been created good by the most important being in all of the universe, but they have been rescued and paid for with the precious blood of Christ. You know, the amount that someone is willing to pay for, for any given thing, it increases the value of that thing being paid for, doesn't it? If human beings, every one of them, male and female, have been purchased by the life of Christ, which has limitless value, by the way, then that same value is imparted onto them. And each one of them has unimaginable value and worth. But as far as we can tell in this letter to Timothy and to the church, some in the church were taking this idea and taking it and twisting it 
beyond what it was meant to convey. They were being led to believe that the unity and value that they now had in Christ, that that actually eliminated all distinctions between men and women. It's almost like an alignment that's gone too far. As they came to believe in Jesus and grew in their understanding of him, it's like they over-tightened that tie rod. And, and, and where at one point, maybe the wheels were, were facing outward, needed an alignment, right? Something had to be corrected. They tightened that tie rod, and they went in, 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 and, and now they're pigeon-toed, and now we got a whole other set of problems here. Whereas before, there were more distinctions than God had designed for. Now, all the distinctions were on the chopping block. So they're saying, let's get rid of, let's get rid of these distinctions. No more are we going to think of women in a lesser way than men. What a wonderful thing, and what a great idea, and the Bible actually supports that. They're equal. But then they said, no, wait. Actually, there are no differences between men and women at all. Do you see the pendulum swing here? Now, that's a lot of background. Let's now take that and draw upon these things as we look at the specifics in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. Let's see what Paul has to say to men and women. As we study 1 Timothy, we see that men in the church, they were locked in a debate of various theological speculations and arguments. And at the same time, it seems clear that the women were emboldened to distance themselves from their husbands as they flaunted their beauty and their status by the way that they dressed and exerted themselves. In 1 Timothy 4, we see that false teachers were convincing women not to marry. You don't need these guys over here. Look at these guys. See, see they're, they're arguing with us. They're way off balance. They just want to suppress you. They want to hold you down. You don't need them. You don't need to get married. It's likely they were also encouraging the women who were married to, um, to, to say, you know what? Your, your husbands are way off. You need to distance yourselves from them. You, know, you don't really need to respect them. You don't really need to value them. You need to exert yourself more. You need to tell them, frankly, how wrong they are. Then in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, Paul addresses young widows, and he's encouraging them to marry and have children and manage their households. Um, apparently, there was, there was some resistance to that idea. You don't need to get married. You know what? You're better off now that he's gone. So, you know, just go it on your own. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. And then he says, some have already strayed after Satan. In other words, it, it, there's, there, it's not right to say that, that marriage and family and all of that stuff is, uh, is, is worthless. That's an unbiblical belief here. Apparently, there are some who were increasingly convinced that based, those basic things, like being married, having children, may, may not be good. Or maybe they're just lower, undignified callings. And all of these things were causing serious problems for the Ephesians church, church in Ephesus. There was a kind of death wobble that was beginning to transpire there. And so Paul intervenes and he gives three essential alignments. That's what we want to look at now. Three essential alignments. The first one is this, that the men would exchange anger and fighting for genuine worship. He writes in verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands 
without anger or quarreling. Now, men, we have some tendencies. Not, not every man, but uh, there are general tendencies that exist within the male gender. And our tendency is very often to pick up swords. To pick up swords, to use our strength to, to suppress or to defeat the opposition. Rather than being an example of Christ-likeness to our families by keeping ourselves pure or exercising self-control and taking the initiative to lead them uh, towards a deeper knowledge and love for Jesus, what we do is we tend to compensate for our shortcomings, for our inadequacies, by letting our anger or our frustration all out. We let it rage on and let fury fly. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The men need to exemplify prayer. Lifting holy hands, they need to show their family what it means to love, what it means to submit, what it means to rely on their creator in worship. Now, in our day and age, we, we typically bow our heads when we pray. Probably has something to do with European roots, the kind of posture maybe a subject would take as he came before his king. It says something like, I'm your servant. Here is my neck. Let your sword fall on me, be it to honor me or be it in judgment as you see fit. But the position Paul suggests here, it reflects more of a Middle Eastern culture. It makes sense that it would. It's that idea that I raise my hands, lifting them up to heaven, and I lift my eyes up to heaven as if to say, I am presenting myself to you. My hands are, are clean. They're ready to be used. I am here. Take all of me. And there's great value, I think, in both postures, but I think that the one that Paul is suggesting here is particularly important for us to take, if not physically, at least in our hearts. It flies in the face of man's sinful desire to go it on his own, seeking personal pleasure, erecting monuments on our behalf to our glory, to rely on nobody but ourselves, to ask for, ask for directions at a gas station. No way I'm going to do that. I'm not going to reveal any flaw, any inadequacy. I am my own person. And we tend to relate to what Jackie Gleason used to say. I'm the king of my castle. Men, what kind of statement does I'm king and you're nothing? What does that say to your wife? What does it say to your kids, to your neighbors, about God's image? Men, you are, are you demonstrating to others that you think that you're some type of, of God? Or are you showing that you are a person who submits to God by how you worship? Is your time to worship publicly in the church, is that something that you hold sacred do you take the time the night before, or maybe early that morning, to prepare your heart to surrender fully in grateful, joyful, unrestrained worship to God? Or are you living for self, being argumentative, fighting for your rights and your honor, or to make, get your point across, or making it clear to everyone that worshiping in the church, that's just some awkward pause that you endure before you can get back to your regular routine. 
back in the garden, Adam should have been the first person to say, you know what, we're going to honor, we're going to honor God. We're going to obey God before anything and everything else at all costs. And his failure to do so left a lasting mark on every single one of his descendants, didn't it? Romans tells us, Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man. One man. Men, don't lead those around you astray by your failure to take the lead in worship and in personal holiness. Don't lead others to believe the lie that they too can become demigods as you teach them how to worship self by letting go of your anger. You've been made in the image of God. So show the world the mutual respect and perfect alignment that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have for each other as you present yourself in submission to God and you live peaceably and orderly with others. That's the first alignment, that men would exchange their anger and fighting for genuine worship. And even though verse 8, it may be a short verse and only one verse, only one sentence in fact, it packs a punch, doesn't it? We've got to take it seriously. The next one has to do with women. That women would use their appearance to give glory to God rather than themselves. Verse 9 says this, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now there's some people who will look at this and they will look at the details that Paul gives here and they will say, you know what? These are universal truths. God disapproves of gold and pearls and fancy clothes, so no woman should ever wear them, especially to church. We don't want to see them. And there are others who will say, you know what, this is, this is purely cultural. It's cultural. I mean, you, you know, Paul had a specific context. There were certain ways of dressing and whatnot back in his day. And so, you know, this is, it's good to know. It gives us a little bit of insight into what was going on in that day, but really there's nothing here for us. It's all cultural. We're just going to push it aside. You know what? Both interpretations, interpretive methods are a mistake. What we need to understand, as is true whenever we read the Bible, is that there are lasting, universal, God-ordained principles being applied in God's Word to a real time, a real place, a real culture. And our goal when reading the Bible, it needs to be to extract those principles and bridge the gap between where they were given back then and where we are today and apply them to our place, to our time, to our cultural context. There are universal truths. In Paul's, in Paul's day, in that part of the world, it meant something when women did their hair a certain way, or wore gold, or pearls, or expensive clothing. If it were worn, if those were worn at times other than very special occasions like weddings, then it communicated something. It said something. It made a statement maybe about her beauty or her social status. Some people related that kind of clothing to prostitution. Others saw it 
uh, as a way that a wife would actually try to bring shame on her husband as she presented her beauty for all the world to see rather than keeping it and saving it for him alone. See, Paul isn't telling us that God hates it when you fix your hair or when you wear jewelry or fancy clothes. What he's getting at here is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And so we have to ask, when you get ready for church, are you thinking about how you're going to worship God who makes all things beautiful, even women in, 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 in the landscape, in the world we live in, God who makes all things beautiful. Is that what you want to do? You want to, you want to bring glory to him. You want to worship him and help others to do the same. Or are you trying to turn heads and draw eyes in worship to yourself? Or maybe you're even using your appearance to, to somehow get an advantage over somebody else. Have power over them. Similar to what we just talked about in regard to the men, this is an example of how God's image bearers often use their strengths to rob him of the worship that he alone deserves. Now, does that mean that all the ladies should uh, dig through their drawers, find the ugliest, the faded, the frayed, the most ghastly, smelly rags to put on before church? No, of course not. But what it does mean is this, that even before getting to church, your mind and your heart should already be worshiping as you consider what you're going to wear and how that's going to allow you and others to worship God without distraction. Are you worshiping in that way? Before you even get to church, Paul instructed that the women would use their appearance for God's glory rather than their own. The fact that we're made in God's image, that should mean that when people look at us, they immediately are directed to how awesome and beautiful and wonderful God is. Kind of like a model. I built little scale models when I was younger. And those things, they point to the real thing to something bigger, to something greater. In the same way, our lives, including our beauty, our personality, our strength, our creativity, our intelligence, most importantly, our actions, Paul says good works here, their good works should lead others to worship God and not ourselves. The third alignment, third alignment, perhaps the most difficult alignment for us to accept is this one that the women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 11 reads, Let a woman learn quietly with all submiss submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why is this difficult for us? Well, it's difficult uh, because, like we've already mentioned, in an attempt to correct the abuses, the mistreatments, the injustices against women, which there have been many, and they have been despicable, and we should look down on them and disavow them and, 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 and point them out and say, that should never, ever happen, our culture in that process has over-adjusted. 
we've gone a little bit too far. In an effort to restore equality, to restore value between men and women, in some ways, we have sought to eliminate distinctions that God has put there. Now, since Christ has came into the world, Christianity has been on the forefront of restoring dignity and honor to women. Christ was the one who broke the cultural norms of the day to elevate their dignity, to restore the value of womanhood. We've already seen the, that erasing, uh, the erasing the lines that were once there in, in Galatians 8.28. But did you know, did you know that this idea of women being encouraged to learn, here in Paul's letter, it, it says, let the women, let a woman learn. Did you know that was a countercultural idea? In Paul's day, it was absolutely countercultural. The Greeks, the Romans, even the Hebrews to some extent, they did not allow a woman to receive that kind of instruction. And it was, in some cases, forbidden for them to learn outside of the home. The Bible is fundamentally for men and for women. Both are made in the image of God. Both reflect his character. Both have intrinsic dignity and value. And in fact, if you want to point fingers at a society that has devalued women, you don't have to look any further than our own. You don't. We may think ourselves on the forefront of women's rights, and yet our society actually devalues women in its attempt to erase their unique role that they're able to play in our world. It stripped them of honor and pride by making motherhood something less than desirable and second to other pursuits. What a despicable, inhumane thing it is to suggest for a woman to really be something in this world, she must suppress any natural inclination to perpetuate or nurture life, which is perhaps the single greatest physical human honor and ability. They, they, we, we suppress that. We encourage them to suppress that to, so that they can make money or so that they can entertain or use their beauty for the pleasure of anonymous, lusting masses rather than save it as a precious treasure to be celebrated by a loving husband. What a reprehensible thing it is we've done to convince our, daughter, our daughters that the miracle God has empowered their bodies to perform in creating life is actually something to despise. It's amazing how incredibly sick it is that we have turned them into murderers and self-loathing slaves to diet and physical fitness. It's incredible. And now, to take the degradation even further and encourage young girls to question the obvious and endure irreversible mutilating surgeries and hormone therapies to mask how they have been beautifully and wonderfully intentionally made by a loving creator. Make no mistake, this culture that we live in, it does not love women. In the name of love, our society has shown its absolute hatred women. But I digress. Paul tells Timothy to let a woman learn quietly 
in all submiss submissiveness. Now, that may rub the wrong way, and, and it probably does, considering the culture that we're in and the indoctrination we've received. But it's important that we realize women weren't the only ones who were supposed to be quiet here. The men were supposed to do the exact same thing. It's just not mentioned here because that's not what was happening in the church in Ephesus. We're not to assume that while the women listened quietly, the men were just to be able to pop off and pass gas or cause a ruckus or do whatever the heck they want. Oh yeah, you women, you guys listen to the sermon. We're just gonna we're just gonna hang out over here and we're gonna have a good old time. No. In fact, what Paul says next about about not per women, permitting a, women, a woman to teach, that's directly related to what he's going to say in the next chapter about the roles of elders and the teaching that is supposed to happen in the general assembly. When all the church is gathered for church service, that's what he's talking about there. That's what he's pointing to. That word submission here, it's a word that we don't like, we often react to, but it's the word that's used all throughout the New Testament to speak of deferring to the direction, not control, of the one in authority over you. Deferring to the direction of the one in authority over you. Everyone submits. We all do it. Everyone is in a relationship of submission and authority. It's the way that God designed the world to work, and it's a good thing. It's the way order is maintained, and it's patterned directly after God himself. How could it be bad? Christ submits to God the Father. He submits to it. Christians submit to God, Hebrews 12, 9, James 4, 7. All creation submits to to Christ, Ephesians 2.22. Christians, they're to submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Wives are to submit to their husbands, Colossians 8.18. That same pattern of order, God intends to be lived out in the life of the church. In, in 1 Timothy 3.2, the role of teaching, the general assembly of the church, that's the whole body, it's to be entrusted to the church elders. They're the men that God has set apart for that particular task. Every, everyone else, men, women, all are to gather and learn what God says as these elders proclaim not their own agenda, not their own opinions and thoughts and, and ideas on how the world should work. No, 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 no. They are to proclaim this and this alone. This is the authority that they sit under and have been called to communicate. So it's God, it's his word, and then those that he has said, I want these people to communicate to the church as a whole. This is good. It's orderly. It's the way God set it up. The problem here in Ephesus was that women were apparently hearing all this false teaching and they were beginning to fight against God's good designs. Now, someone might say, well, that's just a cultural thing, right? I mean, Paul was demanding that women listen and not exercise authority over a man because that was, that was the backward culture of their day. But it's not. We know that's not the reason because of what the text says right here. It's because of what Paul says next. That's the reason. 
He writes in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He doesn't point to some cultural situation or, you know, in, in Rome, do as the Romans do. He's not saying that. No, he's saying this has to do with the way God designed things, which the way that he created things. This is God's thing, not a cultural thing. And it reflects his image. Now, this isn't saying that all women are to submit to all men at all times in every situation. No, it's specific to the role of teaching and preaching in the main church services and then the highest levels of authority within church leadership. There are all kinds of examples of men learning from women in the Bible outside of that main church service setting. But when the whole church body is gathered for the preaching of the word, when it comes to that pastor-elder role and that authority, that, that as they sit under God's word, those things are to reflect God's original design. And some might say, you know what, that still just doesn't, does not sit right. I understand that. All I can say is there are a whole lot of things that God tells me to do that do not sit right. I don't like being corrected. I want to do things the way that I want to do them. I didn't go astray like a sheep, like a dumb sheep by mistake. No, that was intentional. I did what was right in my own eyes. Paul gives one final support for this particular realignment. He writes in verse 14, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, he's not saying that, that Eve or, or, or women get the harsher punishment because they sinned first. He started, she started it, so she gets in trouble more than Adam does. No, he's pointing out that in the fall, people made in God's image, they did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. They did the opposite. As the man failed to lead, the woman stepped in. It's a vacuum in leadership. She stepped in, stepped up, led humanity. Unfortunately, it was in the wrong direction. This is something that should not happen in Christ's church. Leadership in the church is to reflect God's original design. It should reflect the order that God intended. It should reflect the perfect order that exists in God himself. And lastly, Paul writes, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now we know he's not talking about salvation here. <laughs> he's made that very, very plain how he believes salvation works. It comes only by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Now, scholars disagree on how this verse is to be interpreted, but I believe it's best understood to refer to yet another reversal of the fall. While it may be that women took the initiative in leading Adam astray, there's hope. There's redemption. Christian women have the incredible opportunity to do the reverse as they point their children their sons, their daughters, away from sin and toward their loving Savior. Do you see that reversal? Do you see what a great opportunity that is? 
It's beautiful. This is good. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, it's about realignment. Realignment. It's a call, not for oppression. It's not an attempt to keep women down or to put them in their place. It's a call to realign with the way God made men and women to reflect his image in the church. Like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are totally equal. And yet at the same time, they're wonderfully different. It's so funny. Our culture claims to celebrate diversity, just not here. There's no distinction here. But according to the Bible, men and women have the same dignity, the same value, but they've been given different roles so that they together might represent who God is to the world and bless others in unique ways. This is awesome. Let's let the way God made us point to his glory and be used for the good of others.